0: Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of well-being managers from organisations around the globe. At ROE, we develop you as a well-being leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace well-being solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving well-being in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace well-being are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Well-Being Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Melissa Doman, US-based organizational psychologist and former clinical mental health therapist. Melissa is also the author of Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, Here's Why and How to Do It Really Well. Melissa has presented and consulted for organizations and Fortune 500 companies across industries and around the world, including clients such as Google, Dow Jones, Microsoft and more. In our discussion, we look at why you should have mental health conversations at work and critically, how to do so. We also take a deep dive into some of the key objections you might face in encouraging line managers to have mental health conversations. Everything from, I'm not a therapist, to I don't know what to say, and I don't want to say the wrong thing.
1: Leaving clinical and then going into organizational psychology is not something that happens very commonly. And the reason I did that is because while I'm deeply appreciative that I had those clinical experiences and I learned invaluable information about the human condition and getting that clinical training. I found that I was treating people in what felt like a broken system and a broken narrative. And I'll never forget, I was standing in my office because I joined a group practice at that stage. And I said, what am I doing? I know I'm providing counseling to these people, but I don't feel like I'm actually changing anything. And something that all my patients had in common is none of them felt like they could talk about it in the workplace. And a lot of them also felt like they were in toxic work cultures. And I thought, let me make an impact at the source. Let me transition into, you know, very traditional organizational psychology. I made the very difficult decision to leave clinical work. That was really, really tough for me because I studied, you know, got the degree, got all the letters after my name. And I thought, this is a big jump. (laughs) So I went into... Org psych, and I did a lot of field work in terms of employee development, culture development, leadership development, and all of these things centered around helping people play more nicely with their toys in the workplace. Even though we're all just a bit older, and so I did that for a number of years. But I noticed that saying mental health when I tried to in that work, a lot of organizations when <sighs> they were like, "We don't, we don't do that." And so in 2018, I was on a people and leadership development contract and they asked me, they said, well, you, you were clinically trained. Would you mind doing a mental health awareness campaign? I said, oh my God, yes, a million times yes. And then it just took off like that. It has been an absolute rocket ship the last four years. And I really quickly discovered that businesses need to know how to talk about this in a business context and do it well, and they need to do it in a concrete way that doesn't make organizations feel like folks are coming and saying, we're just going to just sing kubaya, and this is going to be group therapy, and it's going to be amazing. We're going to talk about our feelings, and that is so not what I am doing. And uh, I feel deeply appreciative to be able to do this work because it is deeply urgent. (laughs) It, It has always been urgent, but now it is... It is emergent. <laughs> and uh, it's been an incredible journey to help businesses of all you know, shapes and sizes all around the planet, uh, talking about not only why to have this conversation, uh, but how to do it really well, also taking tons of systemic things into account.
2: Actually, I just want to pick up on one of those points that you made, because I know in one of the last chapters, you talked about how at the moment, there are just these significant events that are happening that are really impacting mental health. And so talk through some of those ones, because I thought that was really good to to pick them out and actually describe them
1: and, and normalize that these are really significant events. So, you know, what's really funny is that every generation always says, oh my God, things are so bad. It's never been this bad. And every generation says that. And they'll say, you know, the other other age groups, they don't understand. I would make a case (laughs) that in this present moment in history, things are particularly tenuous. And there is not only a lot of really challenging things that are going on, but we have access to information (laughs) all the time about all these like seismic events that are occurring all around the planet. So whether it is the absolute dumpster fire that the U.S. has turned into, let's be clear, that's what's happening, whether it's the dumpster fire the U.S. has turned into or some of the economic challenges happening in Europe or the racial inequity that is just continuing to explode around the planet, or whether it's the issues that the U.K. are having or whether it's the war on Ukraine, there are so many things that people carry with them. Whether it impacts them directly or whether it impacts someone they know. And it just doesn't make sense to me if you're spending 35 to 70 hours a week with people, depending on the industry you work in, where when you go on site or zoom in, that you're supposed to go, I'm here now and there's nothing else that's impacting me. How are you? It's just a bunch of nonsense. And so the things that people carry with them can be so significant. Again, depending on your geographic location, your culture, all all these sorts of things. And I hate to say that the list just keeps growing. And particularly now being based in the US, and I've lived in a bunch of other places around the world, but when we came back to the US right at the start of the pandemic, and the issues in particular here are so volatile that tons of US workplaces are like, we we don't know what to do. We want to be able to talk about this, but each one of them feels like they have 10 grenades attached. What do we do? And so it's about observing the fact that you don't need to do anything. It's about creating space for the conversations because people are being impacted in different ways. So it's not just teaching people how to have mental health conversations. It's about you know taking the blinders away And trying to show awareness of what's also occurring for others in addition to yourself. But make no mistake, we carry those things with us everywhere we go. Because the last time I checked, it's one brain and one organ for life and work. So it kind of goes with you everywhere you go. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And tell me, is that what inspired you to write the book? I think a couple of things inspired me to write the book. Because when I transitioned into org psych and they started to subspecialize, mental health at work and I had been doing tons of talks and I had accumulated enough field expertise from doing both clinical and then switching, switching into workplace psychology and, and doing all these talks. And then I thought to myself, I am really annoyed that there is no easy to understand how to guide just of how to have the damn conversation. Seriously. There's a lot of like uh, fractured information that's available in lots of different places. Lots of people don't even know where to start. And I thought, I think I've accumulated enough expertise that I could write like a playbook. Let me see if I can pitch to a publisher and if they, you know, tell me to F off or not. And then I pitched it and they wanted to publish it. I was like, oh no, I have to write this now. That's scary. And I'm deeply appreciative I did because they helped it become something that's useful and easy to read and easy to implement because there's a lot of information out there. And I just wanted it to be so easy to understand that anyone could get something from it. And I definitely picked that up.
2: I think that was one of the things that I was you know, reflecting with Chris actually was that, it's that really good balance between being practical by having enough evidence behind it. Because it's one of the challenges in this space, isn't it? That's kind of... Oh sort of oh, yeah. kumbaya that you that you were referencing um one of the things I wanted oh. to um
1: <laughs> I, I, wanted I gotta to, t- I gotta you tell go. you I don't mean to interrupt you but I am deeply happy and appreciative that my publicist called me the anti-woo and I said what does that mean and she goes all that like fluffy stuff that's out there that people go well this sounds great in theory but how do I implement it she's like you are the antithesis of that and I said I will take that as compliment thank you <laughs> I love so I should that. add that to my title on LinkedIn and <laughs> the anti-woo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
2: think that's really critical because it actually taps into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is around those, those common myths and barriers. And this is something that Chris and I hear as well, you know, in organizations that one of the real challenges is getting managers to have those conversations. And maybe it comes from a place of being nervous or uncomfortable or whatever but you know these are some of the ones that um that we pulled out of the book but also ones that you know resonate with us that managers don't want to have to be a therapist they don't want to say the wrong thing they don't want to you know they don't feel like they have the bandwidth or kind of feel like if i open that pandora's box holy what am i going to find way too scary just not going to have that conversation mm-hmm. or maybe they don't want to you know, be in a conversation like that, that's um, yeah, completely out of their comfort zone, that they don't have the words for, all those sorts of things. So what are some of the common myths and barriers and what prevents those conversations from taking place?
1: Lack of knowledge. Let me tell you, knowledge is power. And because talking about mental health at work is loaded with gray areas, the easy thing to do is avoid it. But in the world in its present state, and how it's going to continue to be. And unfortunately around the world, it's not as wonderful as it is in New Zealand. And we are so deeply jealous of your incredible leader. I I fangirl about your PM. I'm like, I would just love to meet her. Um, But the thing is that the lack of knowledge and the lack of understanding about the topic, the lack of understanding the type of language to use and that you don't have to be perfect, and that even the admission of not knowing what to say, but that you want to be helpful can be so powerful. And also knowing the boundaries and how what is within your remit to discuss with someone and what is not your responsibility. So it, it's not this like, because a, a huge problem is that not only for managers, but also people in HR, is that they have this misconception that they need to be everything to everybody and wear the superhero cape and move the sun, the moon, and the stars, which actually prevents other chronologically aged adults from being accountable and responsible to to address the issues they're having and do something about it. And so there is a difference between caring about someone's general emotional well-being versus inquiring about a mental illness. There is a difference. And so the problem is that when people don't know the difference and they don't know what is okay to talk about what's crossing the line, they just avoid it altogether, which is is just not sustainable. And so again, we're not trying to turn managers into therapists or anything. We're trying to teach them the conversational literacy required to be able to show authentic care around the mental health of their team and what that looks like, where the boundaries are. And when they're not the best person to help that person, that's something that's also not talked about enough is, oh, I'm worried I'm going to open Pandora's box. Well, if you understand when something comes out of the box and you go, oh, I am not the best person to help this person, so here's what I need to say, that is reasonable to make sure that person gets help from the folks who actually can and should help them. It's almost like the art of triaging, you know? And so that's what I'm trying to dispel is it's not this all or nothing, you know, the box open and and a, a snake comes out and bites you in the face. That That's not, I mean, it might feel that way emotionally, but you got to be willing to open the box and then you have the toolkit to address it based on what comes out of the box each time. And that makes it straightforward. Well, and I think because that's one of the things
2: that I, I picked up from the book as well, which I thought was a really good Your kind of framework was thinking about the differences in which people come to mental health. So their family background, some of the messages around that, their religious or their um, cultural backgrounds around mental health. I don't think we touch on that enough either. Would that be your?
1: Absolutely not. I say this time and time again in my work. It's kind of ridiculous. If you're going to ask people to perform a new skill set, Without taking a peek behind the curtain to see what they're coming to the table with. Seriously, you're going to ask these people to get on the same page about a topic that is so deeply personal without addressing that fact. I wish you the best of luck. And so it's really important to understand that even though there's the objectively agreed, of, agreed upon biological and medical definition of mental health and mental illness, That doesn't matter when it comes to personal experience. There could be loads of different factors that impact how people view those topics, the permission or lack thereof to talk about those topics. If it's even a recognized concept, there are certain communities around the world who are like, ah, it's a bunch of nonsense, such an American thing. And so that's what's really challenging is to see all these different factors that influence people's beliefs, perceptions, biases about this topic that they don't think to include as they approach this just because they're standing on the same soil or they work in the same company. So I'm constantly pushing my clients, which are businesses of all different shapes and sizes. I can teach your organization how to talk about this, but if you're not acknowledging the sea of differences that people are bringing to the table, you are screwed. And so I my undergrad degree was in sociology. And I, I'm often surprised at how much I'm pulling that education in to the org psych work I'm doing because you have to remind people to zoom out. You have to zoom out. And so that's something a lot of businesses are asking me to talk about is basically how do we talk about these differences on this topic while trying to find some sort of, you know, reasonable middle ground.
2: And that's such a good segue into you know, actually talking about what a mental health conversation looks like, because one of the things I know you talk about in the book is is how important that permission is to have that conversation and how that is influenced by where people come from in terms of how they view mental health and what that looks like. So talk me through that. What what does a mental health conversation look like
1: taking into account all those myths and barriers and challenges and gray areas? and All of it. I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but it really depends on the situation. There are some cases where through observations of another person that you might be the one to approach them. It could be that someone approaches you. It could be something completely impromptu. You know, it really depends on the situation. But something that I like to stress is that the onus is not just on the helper, there's also shared responsibility of the person who's talking about what they need. I wrote a whole chapter on it, in fact, because it it really bothered me that it was just solely focused on the person who is who is doing, you know, giving the help. And I said, well, what about the people who are asking for help? Isn't there some sort of responsibility on them on what they share, why they share it, who they share it to and what they want people to do with that information? What about that? And so I ranted uh, politely in an entire chapter, basically kind of leveling the playing field because it it needed to be talked about. It can't just be on the helper. And so what I would say is that I'll give some broad brushstrokes in terms of best practice. Generally speaking, let's say you want to help someone. People don't like to be told how they feel. They don't like to be told how they think. It really pisses them off, in fact, because the average person is not asked that question. They're also not asked, how can I be most helpful? People jump straight into fixing things when maybe someone just needs to have a bit of a case of word vomit. And so <laughs> the some best practices I could give is that if you're noticing someone's kind of off their baseline, do not assume the reason. Do not bring it up in front of other people or in a in a potentially awkward time because would you want someone to do that to you? I think not. And then if you're going to share with them, there is a huge difference. Sarah, I'll use it as an example if that's okay. Go for There's it. There's a huge difference between saying, um, Sarah, if I've noticed that you you seem kind of not yourself the last three weeks. I, I don't want to assume why, but I just wanted to ask her, are you doing okay? Like I'm, I'm here for a quick chat if you want, versus are you struggling with generalized anxiety disorder? (laughs) There's a huge difference. Showing authentic care is not intrusive and it's not illegal. So you want to share observations. You want to use the noticing technique. You want to give a statement of intention, why you're bringing it up. Because especially if you're a manager and you're having that conversation with a team member and you've never talked about it before, if you don't give any sort of context that you're just trying to check in, make sure they're okay, get them connected to resources, if you've never talked about it before, that is a great way to make them freak out and think they're getting fired. So statement of intention matters. Really, it matters. And you want to approach it with the offer, but understand that no one is obligated to share anything with you. It is their decision, whether or not they open up to you. And if they choose not, you go all good. I understand, you know, I'm here if, and when you want to have that conversation. And it's not always going to be that linear. There's also people who may not know what they need. They may not know they need help. They may not have a desire to address their problem. We can all be adults and admit those people exist. That just because you notice there's an issue doesn't mean someone's gonna do anything about it. So, and also on the flip side, if you're trying to ask for help, I often find that we get stuck in the space of very creative assumptions about what people might think about us if we talk about certain things. And that's based on all that conditioning, could be past workplace experiences, lots of things. But if you're gonna talk about mental health in the workplace, This is something I think a lot of campaigns miss. We're not sharing for the sake of sharing. We're sharing with intention. We're sharing with purpose. If you're going to bring this up at work, there better be a reason. Who are you going to talk to? Why are you talking to that person? What do you want them to do with that information? What are you prepared to do with that information? Because when you go to people and you have no legs under it, what do you expect them to do? They're not mind readers. And so if you don't feel psychologically safe to have those conversations with your manager or with HR, that's a whole different kettle of fish in terms of, is that a psychologically safe place for you to work? Do you have the luxury of looking for another job going elsewhere? That's a whole different conversation. But if you're going to talk about your own mental health at work, do that back-end prep first. Why do I want to talk about this? Am I nervous? Why am I nervous? Who's the person I really need to talk to? Am I nervous about them sharing my information? Do I need to tell them what my concerns are so they know up front? Be prepared ahead of that conversation because it's better to come to it informed and being clear to that person about what you need versus just having it flow out of you in a moment of crisis when your logical part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex is basically switched off because your amygdala is going, who's... Who's coming for a fight? Who do I need to survive against? (laughs) So um, there's a lot more I could share, but those are some of the best practices. And I think that's
2: a good point because it's one thing I know I reflect in my burnout story, and I've, I've I've been speaking to others recently who have either come to the realization that they are experiencing burnout or or have had a similar experience where when you're going through that, you sort of get to a point of no return where you're no longer aware of where you are and how far you've fallen and so if you've got people around mm-hmm. you when I reflect on this when people around me said oh I should have said something I didn't know and probably to be fair if they'd said how are you going I would have said I'm good not having the self-awareness of how far I'd fallen so if you're a, yeah. a person in a position say you're know, a friend of mine looking in on my situation and saying how do I have that conversation with someone who perhaps isn't as aware of where they're at right now what would that look like
1: that's that's such a good question, and so. <sighs> It always makes me so it makes me laugh when you would ask someone, you know, how are you going? And I I love hearing you say that because it just reminds me back of when I traveled in New Zealand and lived in Oz. And it's it's a very precious relic of a time gone past. And when people go, I'm fine. I'm sorry, being fine is not an emotion. It is also not a state of being. Try again. And so the thing is that that's an automated response, and even if you're not aware of how far you've fallen, or you feel like you can't tell people you've fallen, sometimes the person who's inquiring needs to ask again. Uh, no, how how are you really doing? How are you actually? How are you really doing? That could be enough. Or depending on your relationship and your rapport with that person, I'm fine. Depending again. Depending on the relationship, please apply this based on the situation. Don't take anything as a one-size-fits-all gospel, please. I get you're saying that you're fine. You really don't seem fine. And I'm your friend. I care about you. I'm concerned. Can, can we talk? <laughs> so you got to take that pre-existing rapport and see like how far you can inquire you know, further. Because it could be a case of the person is just so on autopilot that they don't see that, you know, warning, warning, maintenance needed breakdown imminent sort of situation, or they could feel like they don't have the permission to talk about it. So sometimes it it is a case of, I get that you're saying that you're fine. You really don't seem fine. It's okay to say if you're not fine. And so I would take the context of that relationship to see, you know, how much further you need to kind of gently press yeah. And I
2: think that's so valuable because I think that's it, isn't it? It's being able to have those conversations and and gently press, but without that person feeling like it's an interrogation as
1: well. And you know what? They can say, no, 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 really, I'm fine, which is key for, you know, F off. I don't want to have this conversation or I'm not ready to have this conversation. And then it becomes a okay, you know, if you ever wanna to chat, you know, I'm 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 around. Because they they don't have to tell you anything, and you cannot force a person to recognize and address something to create change if they're not ready or unwilling, and that that's one of the toughest lessons for people to accept. Which leads actually
2: really nicely to a couple of the phrases that were in the book that are, that really resonated with me, and I wanted to um, <laughs> to tease them out with you. And so I'm going to you am going to say the phrase, and then you can tell us about what you meant. Okay, so the first one is toxic positivity. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, boy. I I wish I could take credit for that phrase, and I cannot. Uh, But it's something I talk about frequently because most people do it without realizing they're doing it because they think it's helpful. And it's also, you know, how they've been conditioned to respond to people who seem to be in some form of distress. So, there is a difference between if someone is coming to you in their hour of need, you're trying to offer some form of hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not what toxic positivity is. Toxic positivity is everything happens for a reason. Do you really think that's what people want to hear when something horrible has happened? Seriously? Or always look at the silver lining or always choose happiness. We're basically pushing them to only look at the positive side of something when sometimes people just need to feel like crap. We are born with a whole host of emotions, positive, neutral, and negative. Have you seen the film Inside Out from DreamWorks Pixar, I hope? Yes. Yes. So that's actually based in real neuroscience, by the way. They had like consulting, you know, neuroscientists and child psychologists who, who consulted on that. And at the end of the film, when Riley becomes a teenager they expand her mood board and so it i think it is so peculiar that when you're not constantly choosing happiness or constantly looking at the bright side or constantly you know not acknowledging those actual feelings and just being forced to move forward i don't get how that's sustainable because we are programmed with all these emotions for a clear reason to let ourselves and others know how we need to respond based on stimuli that are coming at us from our environment. I'm pretty certain of the dozens and dozens and dozens of emotions in the feeling wheel from Dr. Gloria Wilcox that she wouldn't endorse this nonsense. So again, you can offer hope to people. He can offer different, you know, alternative perspectives that it may not have occurred to them, introducing new information into the system. But if you're constantly making people feel like they have to choose happiness or any of those other things I mentioned, you're basically saying that your negative thoughts, feelings, and experiences are not welcome in this conversation because they bother me and they make me uncomfortable. And I would like to move on from this as fast as possible. And I don't care what that does to you.
2: It's almost invalidating, isn't it? completely invalidating the the feelings that they have, which leads to my second phrase for you, which is the workplace is really just an adult playground.
1: Tell us about that. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I realize this might seem like an odd concept, but even though we're all chronologically older, notice I didn't say mentally older, chronologically older, We still carry a set of needs with us that, depending on if they're met or not met, or where they're met and not met, those can be brought into the workplace and just give a good old trigger response depending on what happens. And so, I cannot stress enough (laughs) that mental age and emotional intelligence is not synonymous with chronological age, those are very different things. And so, even though we're all older, And we are in a workplace, whatever type that is, you're still working with people. And so if people have their own stuff or long-term sensitive spots, whatever you want to call it, you really think that's not going to come out in a workplace when he wants to be king of the jungle gym and that person doesn't want to share their, you know, pail and shovel for the sandpit. And this person wants to be the gossip queen. And this person wants to have this and this and this and this. We're all just older. And so sometimes I observe this behavior in people of all ages from all backgrounds. And I go, oh my God, you would never guess that person is 65 years old based on how they're treating these people, like workplace bullying, very much alive and well, all around the planet, or clicks, or favoritism. Or people who like to share their toys slash projects or people who don't. So if you look at the workplace as just an adult playground, it makes so much more sense when people go, I can't believe they said this. I can't believe they did that. And they go, if you think about it like a playground, it'll make a lot more sense. <laughs> Jeez, it's such a, it's such a such. I'm not business. talking to you, Siri. She was listening. <laughs> <laughs> sorry.
2: Technology. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that leads me. she really nicely to the next one, which is well-being shaming. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, that's a doozy. So that is a uh, concept that I created because I was just so sick of seeing it. So when it comes to, and I realize this looks very different depending on the culture that it's occurring in, and, and there's lots of different nuances, generally speaking, what that looks like, and it even happens now during a pandemic. When well being is at the forefront of so many people's minds, when someone might say to another person from their organization, Oh, it must be nice to sign up at 4 p.m. every day. I wish I had that time. Oh, it must be nice to go for a run at lunchtime three days a week. You know, I just, I have too much on my plate. I couldn't do it. Oh, it must be nice to work a condensed schedule because you have kids. What great special treatment. Seriously? We're going to make people feel bad for making choices to have some modicum of work-life integration and not burn themselves into the ground. So people do it in these like passive aggressive, ridiculous ways to either uphold the status quo or they're secretly jealous and they wish they could do it and they don't know how to self-advocate. There's a whole host of reasons that people say stupid stuff like that to each other And I've encouraged countless people that let's, let's say, for example, uh, Sarah, I'm going to use you again as an example. Let's say that you went running at lunchtime three days a week and you're working for a corporation and they really just helps you clear your head, work a lot better, yada, yada, yada. And let's say that another leader says to you something like the phrases I said, the risk, the only response you need is doing things to prioritize and manage my mental health is a healthy adult practice, I'm really curious why why you don't agree. That's it. That's all you need. You're not being rude. You're not being insulting. You're not saying anything untrue. You're saying why you do that, the benefit from it, and seeking to understand why that person doesn't agree. Please do that and report back at how far that person is slack-jawed to the floor. because there's nothing, it's not rude, it's not ridiculous, it's it's none of that. Doing things to prioritize and manage my mental health is a healthy adult practice. It helps me work better. I'm curious why why you don't agree. That's
2: it. Let them dig themselves into a hole. Do you know, I wish I had known that back in the days I worked in a corporate and I can remember leaving at five once and one of the managers saying to me, I didn't know you worked part-time. Like I've been here since seven. I'm very tired. <laughs> I <sighs> wish I had known that phrase. <laughs> well, but, better late than never, right? <laughs> totally, totally. And then, I suppose, too, that was before mental health was um, much more at the forefront than it is now. So, my last phrase for you is leadership stoicism.
1: Oh, that's a, a very complex one because uh, historically speaking, leaders are meant to be seen as steady seas, good leadership. Things don't rock them. People can look to them for guidance in all situations. I don't understand how suspending your humanity is being a good leader. There is a difference between running around like a chicken with your head cut off, which is what people are equating to showing any form of anything, versus being honest about how you're feeling about something or something that's happened to you Or that you're a fallible creature like everybody else, despite your job title. So, when you're encouraging leaders to be stoic and a brick wall, how are you supposed to expect them to not only take care of their own mental health or to feel like they can have those struggles, but that their team would bring it up to them? Humans do what they see other human beings do well. So, if they have leaders who never talk about this stuff, ever, What would make what? Why would you expect their teams to feel comfortable to either? And the other thing that it it kind of robs that situation of is again, because everybody in the workplace is a chronologically aged adult, if you're being stoic as a leader, you're also preventing your team from opportunities to support you. You can support each other both ways. Just because of a job title doesn't mean your team member can't support you. That has to stop. And so there's a lot of leaders who are becoming much more transparent about the the struggles they have, whether it's mental health or mental illness or just things going on in their life. And it actually, they have found, generally increases rapport between them and their team because they feel more connected to them. It humanizes them as a leader. And so that is still a rampant issue in lots of places where leaders feel like they have they have a muzzle on because if they don't, they're concerned about being seen as weak or they can't handle the job or other ridiculous stereotypes that are not based in logic. And so I'm trying to encourage leaders to let go of that very dysfunctional narrative and have a very personal conversation with themselves of if I'm going to take the wall down What do I want people to see? Think of it as you're not having an open playing field. You're not having a brick wall. Consider it to be a fence. You decide what gets through, but you got to let something through.
2: Which probably gets to, to the the next point about being a support person. And look, I'm I'm wearing a bit of a personal hat when I ask this. Some of you might have seen my LinkedIn post. I'm currently a support person for someone with um a mental illness. And so I'm rediscovering firsthand what it means to be on the other side of the fence and and have those conversations be there, but also protect your own self-care and do all those things that are really important, you know, as we were alluding to. So
1: Tommy, what does it look like to be a good support person in the workplace? So there's a couple of things, you know, granted, I want to make it clear that we're not telling every single person you have to talk about this. We're looking at option without obligation. And if you're going to choose the option, how to do it well. And so people are very good at assuming information when there is a lack of it. So what I mean by that is that if you want people to know that you're happy to support them, you're happy to have these conversations. If you have never talked about it before, if you've never talked about your own struggles, if you've never made it explicitly clear that people can come to you, that isn't laying the foundation for being a good support person. And it doesn't mean you're turning into people's therapist, but just making yourself seem approachable that people can can come to you if they need to talk to you about something. But again, It is not up to you to save them. It's not up to you to fix them. It's not up to you to be their mama or their dad or or any of that nonsense. What you can be is a compassionate listener who also understands that the other person who's coming to you has responsibility and accountability to self-manage, period. So when it comes to being a good support person, just making it doesn't have to be, you know, explicitly, overtly clear. Like, come talk to me about your mental health. You know, you don't have to do that, but asking people how they're doing, or even just as you feel appropriate, sharing what's going on with you is is a really good way to start. And not avoiding those conversations, avoiding those topics because that's what it really comes down to is the types of conversations you have.
2: If there were kind of three things that you would suggest they took away to start getting those mental health conversations more embedded in their organization, getting people more comfortable with having them, what tips would you recommend?
1: I would be very, very, very clear about the actual reason your organization wants to have this conversation, not the market-dictated reason, which makes it seem like a checkbox. So if you're going to talk about this in your organization, you know, beyond just a one-on-one, or you're trying to get some sort of mental health initiative out, I would be very clear about your why, because if it's anything short of, we need to talk about this for our survival. If it's anything short of that, if it's, gosh, how do I say this? The human case has already been made. The business case has been made. The ROI case has been made. The data is there. What's it going to take? Seriously. So if your business is going to talk about this, Making sure that the right people are aligned on the intention and the purpose behind talking about this, because it's not just something you talk about for Mental Health Awareness Month in May or World Mental Health Day in October. This is conversational literacy as part of professional development in the workplace. And that is best practice in the world of work going forward. So I would be very clear on why you're doing it, what you're trying to achieve, what you're going to provide, how you're going to measure growth and success, and how you're going to iterate the program as the landscape changes. And really focusing on it as as equipping people with skills as opposed to just a nice well-being discussion. It it, it can't just be that. It's so much more. And so I realized that's very uh, terse but it's what is required to get through to people because when you when you only nest it under well-being, unfortunately, there are still a lot of people in the world of work who then don't understand the gravity and the necessity and the urgency of having this conversation. Yes, it absolutely is tied up in well-being inextricably, but it has to start being positioned as not only a a well-being necessity but also core professional development for people at all levels of an organization and so that's the um, the approach that I would encourage people to take.
0: Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of well-being head to rowwellbeing that's R O W com, and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.